The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, June 17th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. It is good to see all of you this morning. If you are a guest with us, let me introduce myself. My name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and I get the privilege this morning to lead us in the reading and the teaching of God's Word. So if you've got your Bibles, if you would open them up to the book of Psalms, head to the middle of your Bible to the book of Psalms, and then make your way to Psalm 32. We are spending the month of June, just four weeks, in the book of Psalms. And and I will be honest with you, as I have prayed about our time in June, each and, and every week, I have become increasingly captivated by the image that we saw in Psalm 1 of the joyful or of the blessed one, that that image we've been talking about now for a couple of weeks that the psalmist gave us of the joyful person being like a tree that was well-planted and well-rooted by streams of water. When When it goes through the inevitable dry seasons and sorrows that we looked at last week, its leaves don't wither. And yet even in the face of dry seasons, not only do its leaves not wither, but in God's appointed time and for God's will, it bears the fruit of God's presence in his or her life to his glory and the good of others. And I'll just be honest with you, as we've been going through a season for the last year or so, as pastors and staff reflecting on the last decade and and praying about the decade to come if God would will to give it to us, looking at the things that God has done, the evidences of his grace, all the things that we've seen happen, and yet the places where we still need to grow and still need to mature and still need to put things together, I have been increasingly captivated as I think about the next 10 years by this picture. What would it be like for God to cultivate for his glory in this city a a people who have a legacy of deep and abiding joy in him? I mean, I'm more convinced than ever, I I do believe, I'm I'm more convinced than ever that this church, Redemption Hill, our long-term hope is that God would do that very thing, that he would cultivate, as we've said the last couple of weeks, a, a forest, so to speak, of joy in him here in this place, joyful, well rooted, resilient, fruitful people for his glory and the good of others. I want Redemption Hill to be known, not so much for how much we know, not even so much for being right about certain things. I want Redemption Hill in the days and the years to come to be known for our joy in the Lord. Nothing less than that. Joy in the Lord. Sacrifice born out of joy. Love born out of joy. As we continue to consider that idea, and we talked a bit about what that looks like in the midst of dry seasons, we talked about the inevitability of those times in life, and yet at the same time we saw in Psalms 42 and 43, there are times when we just can't even put our finger on why we find ourselves in in such dry seasons of soul, when sorrow seems heavy, when the Lord seems distant. And we saw the response of the well-rooted in those seasons. And this morning, in in Psalm 32, I want us to take a little more time to be a little more specific about that. 
I want to continue in that same train of thought this morning where if we saw last week that there are seasons in life when this comes and we don't know why, there are other times in life when we find ourselves in the midst of dry seasons, feeling distant from the Lord, dryness of soul, and and there are reasons that we can point our finger at. There are specific reasons why, in God's grace, we can see that we found ourselves in those situations. And Psalm 32 leads us to one of those times in particular. So if you've got your Bible, let's read it together. And then we'll discover what the Lord has for us in it. Psalm 32. Notice the heading again, a masculine of David. It's a psalm, a song written for the instruction of God's people to make them wise. That's what the, ma- the word masculine comes from. It, it's what we saw last week. It's instructed to make us wise in the Lord, how we think and how our heart feels. Psalm 32, verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Right away, you can see we're back to looking at that blessed one again, that joyful one again. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin." Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with a bit and a bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray this morning. Father, we ask that you would do the very thing that you intended for this psalm to do, and you would do it this morning by your Holy Spirit in our hearts. Instruct us in your grace how we should think, how we should feel. And we ask that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. David should have known better. David should have known better than to not stay at home when his army was out fighting at war. David should have known better than to try to make a pursuit after another man's wife. David should have known better. He should have known better after doing that that he couldn't find a way to adequately cover up his tracks. He should have known of all people that everyone around him can count to nine months. It's not that hard. He should have known better He should have known better than to arrange to have another woman's husband killed in the heat of battle to try to cover up his own errors. He should have known better. But now all of that was done. 
time will eventually calm the the disquiet and the, the raging waters in his soul, won't it? But enough time goes by and forgetfulness can slide in, maybe it will all start feeling differently. What do you do with your I knew better moments? David is reminding us in this psalm that the joyful one, the, the blessed one, blessedness, resilience, it's, it's contingent upon how you handle these times in your life. And Psalm 32 is going to be very explicit with us, just like Psalm 1 was. There are two primary ways you and I handle these I-should-have-known-better moments. One leads to the blessedness and joy the psalmist has been talking about, and the other leads, at best, to sorrow. The first thing that David presents to us, the first path to the I should have known better moments, the first way that you and I are tempted to handle these moments is with silence, suppression. For when I kept silent, David said, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Uriah was dead. Bathsheba was now David's lawful wife. It looked like he had tied up all the loose ends from his sin. Everything should be fine now. In time, it will no longer feel the way that it feels inside. Or so David thought. Certainly, if, if I can forget it, if I can box it away, compartmentalize it, put it in the past, so can God. Friends, that's a delusion. For day and night, David said in verse 4, day and night, all day long, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then he writes, Selah, which means pause, consider, what, consider what I just said. You see, David has determined at this point to not deal openly and honestly with God, with himself, or even with Delilah. David has chosen that he is not going to deal openly and honestly with his sin. Friends, unconfessed sin is like a toxic substance in your soul. Unconfessed sin is the enemy of joy of the blessedness the psalmist is talking about. Unconfessed sin will literally kill your soul from the inside out. It's like radioactive waste. You can build tunnels, you can dig holes, you can bury it as deep as you want, but at some point it is going to find a way to permeate that surface. It's going to make its way out. It's going to destroy you from the inside out. My bones, David said, they wasted away through my groaning all day long. Most commentators agree that David isn't speaking metaphorically here. See, we're not dualistic beings. We're not soul and we're not body. We're one. God has made us one person. We talked about this a bit last week. Unconfessed sin and guilt 
it will cause physical symptoms in the body. It will cause damage to your physical body, and then it feeds on itself. That damage, though often unable to be able to isolate physically because of where it's coming from, only causes the pains of of guilt and anxiety to grow worse. And David's feeling it. Silence. Suppression with God regarding your sin. Unconfessed sin will always lead to a deterioration of soul. Not only that, it will sap you absolutely drain you of spiritual vitality and joy. My strength, he said, was dried up as by the heat of summer. There's that dry season. There it is, the the dry season that the well-planted is having to go through. And why is he having to go through it? Why is he feeling the way that he is feeling? Why is the sorrow coming upon him the way it is? Why is he feeling as though his body is breaking down all day and all night? It's very clear. He's trying to suppress his sin, to hide the reality of his sin from himself and, and from God. Friends, if there's something, some area of sin that you dare not face because you feel like it might be too embarrassing, it might be too humiliating. Maybe you've told yourself that it's just better for everyone else around you if no one knew because of the damage that it may do if you were to be open about it. Perhaps you've been wrestling with this for years, decades. You've dared not even seek forgiveness unconfessed sin will literally destroy you from the inside out. It is going to have an effect on your soul. Hiding your sin will always lead to a dryness of spiritual vitality. And here's the irony in it. If you're anything like me and you've spent any ounce of your life trying to suppress something, trying to hide something, knowing in your mind that God sees, God knows everything, but you've convinced yourself that if you can just compartmentalize it and put it away, it's not as bad as you think, and at some point you won't be thinking about it anymore, so you won't feel that way anymore, and it will all just go away. Here's the irony of the whole thing. You and I think it's going to be so exhausting if we were to be honest with God and others at all times about our sin. That's just a hard way to keep living, but the reality of it is it's much harder much more taxing and much more damaging to that which matters to try to suppress it and put it away. Unconfessed sin, the urge to suppress it, compartmentalize it, distance yourself from God. Friends, it will always, always, always lead to a sapping and a drying of joy. But don't miss the beginnings of the hint of grace that David gives even in this. There is a grace to a guilty conscience. I don't know if you've ever realized that. There is a grace from God to you in a guilty conscience. 
David said, it was your hand. It was your hand that was heavy upon me. And I love that word heavy. I looked up where that word is used in the rest of the Bible. It was an interesting word to me this week. And I looked up where that word was used in the rest of the Bible. And it's used in the Old Testament and then translated into the Greek in the New Testament. And it's always used in some way to be buried under the weight of something like a sand or a dirt or the massing of heavy chains. The hand of God on David's soul in relation to the sin that he had committed and was trying to hide, the grace of God was weighing heavily on his heart. God in his fatherly kindness was bringing pressure to bear on David. God can't ignore David's sin. God won't ignore David's sin. The fatherly hand of the Almighty was weighing heavy on David's heart. And I love how James Boyce, the great preacher from Philadelphia in the 20th century said, he said, to sin without feeling the sting of God's disciplinary hand is the sure sign of illegitimacy. Oh, there's grace. There's grace in the heaviness of a guilty conscience. But let's be honest Every single one of us in here can identify with David's hesitation, can't you? Who in here likes to admit and own when they've sinned? Who in here likes to come face to face with the reality of their own sin? I don't like to admit when I've sinned, and if I was going to compare myself to what David's dealing dealing with in this psalm, I don't like to admit when I've sinned in my mind far less than he has here. It doesn't come natural to me. But it's a delusion. We're deluding ourselves if we begin to think that we can actually hide our sin from God. It's a delusion that you and I try to convince ourselves of to begin to think that if we just suppress it and put it away, it's going to have no impact on our soul. Friends, unconfessed, suppressed sin, it destroys joy. It destroys vitality. It is the opposite. It produces the opposite of well-rooted and resilient. It's the opposite of the spiritual evergreen whose leaves don't wither. Friends, unconfessed sin is an enemy, a chief enemy of the joy that God has for his people. But it doesn't have to be this way. The the blessedness, the the joy, the vitality the psalmist has been talking about, it's found in not trying to cover up your tracks. You listen for the distinction here. This joy, this blessedness, this vitality the psalmist has been describing, you don't find it when you try to cover up your tracks and cover up your past and suppress those things. It's found When you let God do that, when you let God cover you and you quit trying to cover yourself, David says that's where joy and blessedness springs from. Listen to what he says in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. 
and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then he says, stop and consider what I just said. There is, <laughs> there is so much here to pause and consider. But David's not hiding anymore. David is pushing back against that urge to suppress, that urge to cover, that urge to hide. Friends, what a relief to finally come clean. What a relief to finally just face the reality of your sin and own it and just begin to pour that toxin out. What a relief it is to stop trying to hide. The blame shifting is done. The exhausting work of coming up with new and better excuses and justifications for yourself. David said, no, pay attention, three times. It's my sin. It's my transgressions. It's my iniquity. Three times David owns it. Three times he comes face to face with it. Three times he's reminding us in the comprehensiveness of that number. He's getting it all out and he's taking responsibility for every single piece of it. Three times he says it's mine and he uses three different words for his sin. It's my sin, he says. The word there the Bible uses for the missing of a mark, like an arrow missing its target. David is owning the fact that in his sin against God and against Bathsheba and against Uriah, he missed the mark of God's revealed will. And he's acknowledged it. He's owned it. He's owning his iniquity, which literally means crookedness. It means something with the intent to deviate from the norm. I've owned it. I'm not trying to hide it anymore. I'm not trying to cover it anymore. I'm exposing it. I'm getting it out there. He's doing the same thing he says with his transgressions. The intentional crossing of a line, rebellion, that's what's behind that word. The intentionality behind what he was doing, violating God's revealed will. I've confessed it, I'm admitting it. Three times he owns it, three different words for sin, three different words for confession. Why so repetitive? It's a literary device to help communicate. I'm not keeping anything back. I'm not cutting any corners. I'm not trying to find any shortcuts. I'm not keeping one piece of it here. I'm not getting just enough out to feel a little bit better about myself in the situation. I'm going to hold this detail back. No, it's all there. It's all mine. This is me. I did this. Friends, blessedness and joy the spiritual vitality seen in the joyful one is nurtured in the soil of honesty with God and others. And if I'm reading my clock correctly, I'm going to give you my sidebar that I wrote down here. Confession is a very interesting thing. I've been thinking a lot about that over the last couple of years. Confession is a very interesting thing, especially in the contemporary evangelical church. I'm afraid, we, we, I'm afraid we've gotten very comfortable 
with the wrong idea of what confession is. It's a bit like the princess bride. I don't think that word means exactly what you think it means. I think we've settled for an idea of confession that is less than the biblical understanding of what David is saying here. The word confession you find in Psalm 32 or you find throughout the entire Old Testament, it's a word that if you translate the meaning of it in Hebrew, it means to agree with or to say the same thing, okay? So what the Bible is meaning by the word confession and the act of confessing is to be able to see what you have done, the sin that you are dealing with, to see its effect on the other person and be able to speak about it to them as though you understand it from their perspective, to agree with them about what has happened. I think you and I have taken this idea of confession and settled for the cathartic release that comes with getting something off our chest like we talked about last week. But that's not confession. I'm sorry if what I said offended you is not confession. That's just a very carefully crafted way of saying that I don't care to do the emotional work of seeing exactly how I have offended you or how what I said or what I did caused hurt to you. Confession involves the emotional work and the specificity of seeing it from the other person's point of view and being able to agree with them. That's what it means. It means understanding how your words or how your actions have given specific impact to someone else. How did what you say hurt that person specifically if you were to think about it? How have what you've done, your intentional transgression, how has that impacted the relationship between you and your heavenly father? How might that have violated his holiness, his mercy? Confession may sound closer to, Lord, I can't imagine what it's like to create somebody and sustain them in every minute of their life. To give breath to their bodies, to keep their heart beating. I can hardly imagine what it's like to give everything to somebody and yet be ignored day in and day out. to have every promise that you make to them broken. I can hardly imagine, but I'm trying. I'm trying. Friends, confession is, is not what you and I tend to think it is. Confession involves the emotional work of trying to see your sin from the perspective of those you've sinned against and being able to agree with it to own it. This is what David has done. The roots of joy and blessedness, they are fed in the soil of honesty and confession. Blessed, David said, is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I love this. Here's the poetry, okay? 
Watch for the poetry as you go through the Psalms. I'll try to point it out as we go through it this month, but three different times David owns the reality of his sin. Three different words David uses for sin. Three different ways David speaks about confessing his sin. Now, three different ways to speak about God's forgiveness. There's a comprehensiveness he's trying to get across to the listeners and the readers. Three different words for forgiveness. Blessed is the one whose transgression, whose rebellious intentional crossing of the line is forgiven. Literally means to be carried away. To be lifted off and carried away. The burden of that intentional transgression is is taken from you. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. There's an amazing imagery there. It's a whole other sermon in itself, but that same word covered there is used back in Genesis in the story of the garden. You may remember that after disobeying God and believing a lie about God and eating from the tree that God told them not to eat from, Adam and Eve sought to cover themselves. They wanted to hide from God. A very physical manifestation of what David is talking about here in Psalm 32. And God came to them and he made them take off their fig leaves, uncover, and then he covered them with the skins of a sacrifice that he made on their behalf. That word cover is used again. And talking about the temple and the Holy of Holies, specifically, it's the same word used for the mercy seat, which covered the Ark of the Covenant that was in the Holy of Holies. And when you go and take that word cover, and speaking about the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant, you go and look at that word cover that was used in Genesis to talk about God covering Adam and Eve. When you talk about David here no longer trying to cover himself, but allowing God to cover him, when you get to the New Testament, that same word cover is translated in Greek, propitiation. A sacrifice made to atone for wrath. Sacrifice, turning away God's wrath. Friends, David is saying what blessedness and joy there is in being found and knowing that you don't have to cover yourself. That in his grace, God will cover you. When you try to cover your sin, when he tried to hide and and cover his sin and try to keep it from God, he wasted away. But... But if by faith and trust in God you quit trying to cover yourself up, if you uncover yourself, expose your sin to God, God will cover it for you. He won't hide it. He won't put it in a closet. He'll cover it in the way the word means. He'll cover it in the sense that it can never be used against you again. Blessed is the one who's forgiven, whose sin God covers. And not just that, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Again, that, 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 that verse right there, it's so rich. Blessed is the one in whom the Lord counts, or New Testament translation, imputes no iniquity. Joy, vitality, blessing, Happiness is found in knowing that God is not keeping a score against you. He's not putting a check next to your name on the board. That God is not imputing your sin against you. 
Friends, God is ready and even yearning to forgive, to restore fully to himself if we will only confess our sin and come to him believing in Christ, the one who made atonement for our sin. And I love how David spoke about it here. There's no Selah in the middle of verse five. When I confessed, when I owned it, when I came clean, when I stopped hiding, when I kept quit trying to suppress it, forgiveness flowed in. Friends, watch how David responds. When you taste this kind of grace, you can't help but want everyone else to know. You can't help. When you truly taste the depth of your forgiveness, you can't help but want everyone else around you to know the same grace and joy of being forgiven. Look at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Today is the day of opportunity, David is saying. Today is the day where forgiveness can be found. Seek the Lord, Isaiah said, while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians. Now is the favorable time. Now, today, is the day of salvation. Friends, for those who have never known the grace of forgiveness from God. You have spent your life thinking that you can push off that heavy hand of conscience and guilt, that enough time will go by and the stirring waters and the tumult in your soul will just go away. Friends, today is the day that forgiveness can be yours. But the very clear implication of Psalm 32, especially verse 6, is that that day won't last forever. There will come a time that justice will be served for those who have not found themselves hidden in God. God's heavy hand upon your soul is a wake-up call. Friends, there is a fate much worse than the pangs of your own fear of embarrassment. There is a fate much worse than the sapping physical vitality that guilt brings onto the body. There is a fate much worse than that. Today is the day when forgiveness can be yours. Today is the day for those who maybe for the first time by the grace of God through faith in Jesus can join David and the believing church in saying in verse 7 that you, O God, are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Friends, do you know the joy and the blessedness of being hidden in God? You see, what God portrayed in the garden with Adam and Eve, when he made a sacrifice for them and covered them in skins, he accomplished for us on the cross in the sacrifice of his son. If you slow down and read Psalm 32, 
and you get to verse 7, and you really think about it, there's a conundrum here if you really think. The thing that you and I naturally think that we have to hide from in our sin is God. How in the world can you and I hide from God in God? Do you hear what David's saying? How can you and I hide from God in God? Have you ever thought about the reasons why the crucifixion was so cruel and historically was one of the single most demoralizing ways that someone could die? I'm not talking about the pain. I'm not talking about being nailed to the wood and, and lifted up and what it does to the body and the lungs. I'm thinking more specifically of what happens before they do that. When they would strip the person naked and they would stretch out their arms and at times their arms would be nailed to the wood, at times their wrists would be tied to the wood. But they would be hanging up on that cross for all to see completely naked. No way at all for them to try to cover themselves and preserve any remaining shred of dignity in the eyes of other people. Friends, did you realize that, that Jesus willingly went to the cross, stripped, naked, hung up before the eyes of the world to see, so that by the grace of God, through faith in him, you and I can be eternally covered in his righteousness. Friends, Paul said that God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God counted Jesus as a sinner so that by his grace, through faith in Jesus, he would not count those who believed in him as sinners. That our transgressions could be forgiven our iniquities covered, our sins not counted against us. When you know the grace of that reality, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. becomes very, very, very good news. God made a way for us to hide from his wrath by hiding us in him. That's the path of the psalm. David starts by trying to hide from God and he ends by hiding himself in God. We sing about it on occasion here. The church has sung it for a couple of centuries now. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. See, the safer you and I begin to realize that we are with God being hidden in him, do you know what happens? The freer you and I become to be open with our sin. See, the deeper the roots of the gospel go in our hearts, the safer we realize ourselves to be hidden in God, cloaked in the righteousness of Christ, the safer we believe and know ourselves to be, the freer we are with the reality of the sins that we continue to commit. Why? Because our morality, our, our virtue, is no longer the foundation of our identity. We're hidden over here. I'm safe 
This is my refuge. I don't have to hide this stuff anymore. All of a sudden, the impulse to do that, the impulse to suppress, the impulse to excuse, the impulse to blame shift, the impulse to spin stories and and cover tracks, it, it begins to diminish. As the roots of the gospel get deeper and we find ourselves more overjoyed being hidden in him, we become more open and honest with our sin. And guess what happens when we become more comfortable being hidden in him and confident hidden in him? Not only do we become more honest, but guess what? we begin to see the reality of our sin more clearly. What's fuzzy sometimes? But the more confident we are in the security that we have being hidden in Him, oh, the freer we are to see the reality of our sin. The freer we are to hear from others. The freer we are to receive a kind of, a kind of pointing out of blind spots that exist in our heart. We're not as defensive anymore. It may still pop up every now and then, it's still there, but progressively the defensiveness to push back for others to see us differently as we want to be seen begins to diminish. Why? Because how they see us is no longer the benefit and the foundation of our reality and our identity. And I'm hidden over here. He's my refuge. My life is hidden in Christ. Now I'm freer to be open and honest with him, freer, to be open and honest about the reality of my sin, quicker to admit when I have sinned and when I am wrong. I love how Keller says it. Keller says the happiest people in the world are the ones who not only know they need to be deeply forgiven, but know they have the forgiveness they need. Friends, this is the fruit of joy. Don't miss that last phrase, though. As we find ourselves hidden in him, he surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. I know it's a poem, but have you ever allowed yourself to think about what makes God shout? You probably think it's something different than this. What makes God shout? Delivering you protecting you, providing for you. Friends, Bob Kellerman, who's a great biblical counselor in Texas, he said, each and every single one of us will either see ourselves as sinners in the hand of an angry God or as sons and daughters in the palms of a forgiving Father. Do you know the blessedness and the joy of finding your refuge in Him? David's going to to send us out with some closing thoughts. It's as though now he writes as if God is speaking and he's speaking to the church. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I mean, how sweet is it that God promises to get us where he intends for us to go and keep us all along the way, watch over us the whole way. But if we ignore the reality of what God is saying, how God is leading, if we ignore the reality of who God is for us, we find ourselves back in what David was trying to say, hiding, suppressing. We find ourselves like a horse or a mule, he says in verse 9, without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and a bridle and won't stay near to you. Back to being stiff-necked and resistant and self-willed. And if we persist there, 
continuing to try to hide, cover ourselves, no longer delighting in the word of God, allowing it to lead us, finding our identity, our refuge in him. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. The vitality will disappear. Joy will be elusive. But, but, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. There, my friends, is the source of God's willingness to forgive. There is the fountain from which joy and blessedness flow. Steadfast love of the Lord. Therefore, here's the command for God's people as David wraps up the psalm. Here it is. You ready? Verse 11, be glad. Translated elsewhere in the Old Testament, rejoice. Be glad. Rejoice in the Lord, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Here's the command. Enjoy God and enjoy his grace. There it is. No one has said it better than Luther, and I'll let Luther close us out this morning. Who is able to express what a thing it is when a man is assured in his heart that God neither is nor will be angry with him, but will be forever a merciful and loving father to him for Christ's sake? This is indeed the most marvelous liberty to have the most high and sovereign majesty so favorable towards you. Friends, when you and I quit trying to cover up our sin, when we uncover to God, God in his grace covers over our sin with the righteousness of Christ. Friends, there are a few things that bring as much joy as knowing that. I'm going to pray for us this morning, and then we're going to begin responding to God. And we're going to do that in a few ways. We're going to do it first by giving you a couple of minutes of, of silence to reflect on God's word and to deal with God. For some of you, this will be the time for you to come clean with God. For, for you to be honest with him. You felt his, his heavy hand upon you. And you've tried to figure out what to do about it. Could you push it away? Could you hide it? Could you just dig things deeper, further in your heart? Friends, this morning, just... Open the door. Get it out. Know the grace of his forgiveness this morning. For those of you that have never come clean with God before, have never confessed your need for him ever before, have never seen your need for his forgiveness, you need to realize the need for his forgiveness is not simply for your joy now. It's for your joy for eternity. This is the morning, the day of salvation for some of you this morning. We're going to give you a couple of moments to reflect on God's word, to respond to him, to deal with him. And then for those who have placed their faith in the person and work of Jesus, who by the grace of God have known what it is to be forgiven by God for your sins, we are going to respond by remembering the sacrifice of Jesus in our place for our sins as we receive communion. We're going to sing, and then we're going to be sent out from here as his people. So let me pray for us, and and then we'll continue to respond. Father, we thank you this morning for showing us what it looks like to live day in and day out in the joy and the blessedness of knowing your forgiveness, a joy that comes from knowing that we are permanently forgiven in Jesus, 
a joy that comes from knowing that we are covered in Him. Lord, help us to know for the first time or the first time in a long time the joy and the vitality that comes from knowing we don't have to cover up ourselves anymore. Lord, for your name's sake, for the glory of your Son, for our joy and for the good of those around us, Lord, make us a people who don't mind being exposed before you, who pursue an openness and an honesty with you, who don't feel like they need to cover up themselves with others. Lord, we want to be people well-rooted in your grace, enjoying the deep waters of your grace. We ask in Jesus' name that you would do that this morning. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.